welcome to Index for Continuance, a small press publishing podcast published by the CSU Poetry Center, which is us. I'm Zach Peckham. I'm Hillary Plum. And and we, we are what we just said. Hello. Uh, in this episode, we speak with Joseph Earl Thomas, who is a writer, uh, author of the recently published memoir, Sync, out from Grand Central Publishing, which is great. You should find it if... Even if you don't want to, um, Joseph is, yeah, a writer, a teacher, um, community organizing, programming person. Does a lot of cool uh, literary work and scholarly work and writing work in the world. Um, I think he could also field dress a serious wound if you had one. Uh, very very capable person who um, we're actually working with right now at the CSU Poetry Center because he's currently the Annis Fieldwolf Fellow in Writing and Publishing. It's true. Yeah. All and friends. the Annis Fieldwolf Book Awards, we'll talk for a little minute about those because they are a, a longstanding Cleveland institution. They were started in 1935. Um, and this is our partner, the CSU Poetry Center partners with the Annis Fieldwolf Book Awards to create this fellowship. Um, and I'll just read a little from Annisfeld Wolf's website. Uh, the Annisfeld Wolf Book Awards recognize books that have made important contributions to our understanding of racism and our appreciation of the rich diversity of human cultures. And they, quote, remain the only American book prize focusing on works that address racism and diversity. They were started in 1935 by Edith Annisfeld Wolf. And had since the very beginning this commitment to social justice and anti-racism and to kind of recognizing, supporting, amplifying literature that was doing that work. So if you are a publisher, you should send your books to them. They do a poetry, fiction, and nonfiction prize. They're part of Cleveland Book Week here. And the book boards are like run through the Cleveland Foundation. So Joseph is our current fellow following um, the poets Layla Shetty and Camden Hilliard, who are here for two years each. And he's here doing some teaching, working with the Poetry Center, doing some community outreach work, uh, and um, talking to us on this podcast, which he probably kind of had to do when we asked. (laughs) He had no choice at all. Um, I hope he had a good time. I think think we made it not miserable. Um, (laughs) One of the ways in which we did that, I think, maybe, um, was uh, in asking him about I mean, I was really interested to ask him some specific questions about kind of like hyper-specific, like subculture, um, you know, we'll get into some kind of quote-unquote like nerd culture stuff. Um, Joseph's done a lot of, I think, really cool like thinking and writing about, um, you know, video games and like fandom and, um, you know, kind of how these things intersect with literature and sort of like just kind of larger ideas about the world and world making. Um, That was a really fun line of questioning to get into with him. And um, in so doing, a term came up that we wanted to add to our uh, growing index of terms for this show. Uh, And this term was juggalo or juggalos. Um, And this was entirely my fault um, where I invoked the juggalo as like an example of a really particular um, kind of like sub subculture or microculture um, with, you know, I think, you know, we kind of talk about how these kinds of like really particular um, 
fan groups or, um, you know, maybe sometimes like nerd cultures, um, you know, can be like a little maligned or seem easy to make fun of. Uh, and I sort of point to this as an example. Um, but actually in thinking about it, uh, it are actually like really cool and like things that, um, you know, examples of like culture making, um, outside of the mainstream that actually, I mean, I feel like at least sort of ideologically have things in common with small press publishing and, um, a lot of other cool, just like self-made, like, um, artistic and aesthetic movements. Um, and so just to say the juggalo as a, uh, I think case study of this, um, is a fan of the hip hop group, insane clown posse. Right. Um, and, uh, I knew that much, right. Um, but I guess also to be a juggalo is to be a fan of ICP or any other hip hop group signed to, uh, psychopathic records, which I think, um, I don't actually know a lot about that record label, but I think that it is the, it's like ICP's record label. Um, I assume. I would, I I would assume too. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, Violent J and uh, Shaggy Too Dope um, would be the, those are the, the guys. All right. The record label guys. And yeah, I guess like, just to say, yeah, this comes up as an example of something that like kind of gets made fun of, but like, if you really like think about it is like actually kind of dope. And then like, you know, I think like juggalo culture in particular is like interesting because it's, you know, it's this whole like uh horror core clown core, like sort of like violent uh, horror aesthetic inspired, um, you know, like uh, face paint and, you know, pretty like aggressively like intense music. Um, and, you know, if you ever like go down the internet rabbit hole, like, researching these things, which you can do, um, you know, you find that like actually the, the sort of like the social culture behind this is actually like pretty inclusive and like, you don't really have to like, you know, there's no real like crazy initiation to like, you know, uh, be part of this. I actually have, a a, a weird, um, I don't know if it's like a personal connection, but there's a, a pretty well-known documentary, uh, called American Juggalo that came out in 2011 that sort of, you know, goes to um, investigate the gathering of the Juggalos, which is, um, you know, a big uh, horror horror core festival um, that centers around ICP that always happens somewhere in the Midwest, usually Indiana, Illinois, Michigan. Um, I think it happened in Ohio a couple of years ago. Um, and they just go and, like, interview all these juggalos and um i was watching it shortly after it came out with some of my friends um you know again 2011 uh and you know we were curious as, as curious as we were kind of watching it because it seemed a little funny and uh someone from our high school popped up in it and i was like oh my god wow there we go um so yeah i don't know i guess like it's it's all incidental um it seems like a little bit of a funny term to to bring in but uh it just feels related to some of this, like thinking about, um, you know, subculture and self-made, uh, just like cultural production. Um, and also like, you know, is actually like pretty regionally aligned. Like this is like a, is actually like a very Midwestern, yeah. uh, scene and phenomenon, uh, hence, hence the Fago. So, um, if you've not looked into it, uh, certainly recommend, uh, the documentary American Juggalo.
Or just look into... I think the phrase juggalo culture is very sonically pleasing. It is nice, yeah. So that's another reason. Yeah, and I'm sort of like avoiding, um, you know, like the overly... Like the other sort of like uh, gendered permutations of the culture. But, you know, one can be a juggalette. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's all kinds of uh, cool hatchet man stuff. <laughs> It's also been around a long time. It super has, yeah. I am very old. Yep. And I think it existed when I was in the high school yeah. myself. Yeah. So, well, a nod to them. <laughs> I think it's cool as hell. Um, big fan of the song Miracles, personally. Yeah. Um, I'm not familiar, too, too familiar with the um, ICP oeuvre, but uh, Miracles is a banger. And a video worth checking out. Absolutely. As I recall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's some there there's some there's some paths of inquiry. <laughs> that so, <are> explored. <laughs> we're slowly transitioning to being a juggalo fan podcast. I mean, there's a lot there, you know? I wonder if there are any juggalo there's gotta be like a juggalo press. I hope so. I'll find out while you deliver our next we just have three entry. terms today, and yeah. they're wide-ranging. So the first was about Anisfeld Wolf, because we want to celebrate um, their book awards and all of the incredible work they do in our region and nationally, um, and thanks to them for working with us. And then we have Juggalos. <laughs> and now our last term is just Nomadic Press, um, because at some point in the interview, Joseph is sort of noting um, his own, like, you know, sadness about hearing that nomadic press had, I think, shut down. Um, and this is something, you know, as we talk about small presses that we, you know, are concerned about, which is like the longevity of things that are attached to just like one or two or a small group of people, what happens when they can't keep it going or, um, their circumstances change, what happens to the press. Um, and so, in the interview, we um, didn't yet have the good news that has since arrived, which is that the majority of Nomadic Press's list um, is migrating over to Black Lawrence Press. So if you were um, a fan of Nomadic uh, and or just kind of wondering about the fates of small presses, um, one thing that happens is that another small press can open its arms and home. <laughs> and uh, so Black Lawrence will... Um, will house those titles and they'll continue to be available. I think it's about, um, I'm just looking at the email. It's over 100 uh, of Nomadic's authors will now be um, just kind of housed at Black Lawrence. Um, Full disclosure, I am also a Black Lawrence author. But in this case, I was just reporting on a cool thing they did. It wasn't really like my own personal propaganda. (laughs) (laughs) So we encourage you to check out Black Lawrence and check out Nomadic Books over there. Totally. And um, and let us know if there are any Juggalo presses. The closest thing I could find was uh, there's a website called JuggaloNews.net, your number one source for the wicked shit, but it doesn't seem to have been updated since 2021. Although um, this isn't directly related, but I feel very interested in this story about how juggalo makeup right because this this is part of the the culture um is uh really really making it difficult for facial recognition technology to that's great identify juggalos so i mean that's like an old school 
use of of that kind of makeup yeah and of different kinds of i think like razzle dazzle camouflage <laughs> razzle dazzle that, this is real in this air is quotes real. razzle dazzle well i put it in air quotes because i was gonna say a phrase that was gonna seem bizarre yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but i feel pretty sure and if not i'll cut this <laughs> that this is what like um ships would use to make it harder to see their movements on the horizon this is in um an awesome book by emily abenroth called um surveillance pageant um mm -hmm. I'll throw in some links. Okay. But just to say... Radiator that, Press. Oh, it's by Radiator Press, which is yep. based in Philly, yep. which is also where Joseph is based. So, we didn't even plan And this. Emily Great. lives in Philly also. So it's all happening. It's all coming together. <laughs> but the point is, people have been trying to obscure their faces from surveillance and the man for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I would like to recognize the achievements of the Juggalos in that regard. Among other things. Um, <laughs> they are at the vanguard of many, many uh, areas. Um, well, cool. Uh, should, should we go talk to Joseph? Let's do it. Here we go. Joseph, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, Joseph, we all work together at the CSU Poetry Center, <laughs> where you are currently the Annisfeld Wolf Fellow in writing and publishing. Um, and that position, it's like a two-year post-grad fellowship and that includes working with our small press and doing community-oriented literary work. Um, and before that, if I remember right, you held several other positions in publishing and literary programming, like working at the Miami Book Fair, at Grand Central Publishing, and elsewhere. So basically, I just wanted to talk to you a little about like what brought you to that kind of work and to this fellowship. Um, sometimes writers are inspired to get involved in publishing as a way to like get some control over the means of production. <laughs> um, sometimes writers uh, recognize how work like theirs isn't getting published much or isn't getting published all that well. And so they know they'll need to be really involved and empowered to help their work exist and reach readers. Um, and I'm curious just to hear more what, about why you as a writer kind of sought out this kind of work and how you think about the relationship between writing and like doing that work of connecting people with literature and literature with people, whether it's in the form of a book, a community workshop or whatever it may be. So yeah, can you talk a little bit about what brings you as a writer to these kinds of work? Yeah, um, the many things, <laughs> um, the many things wrapped in, in one good question, I think. I um, So it's a little bit of both. So both having to do with... Um, having, you know, what kind of control is possible over the music projection and thinking about, you know, uh, for me, I was like the work that I want to publish. I don't, I was like, I cannot just send this to someone that I don't know and expect it to just go out into the world the way that, um, uh, I believe it should. And so I guess I would add a certain kind of curiosity and, um, insecurity to that too, because I, um, I mean, you know, this about me to some extent, I didn't, immediately come up in the um, writing or humanities world. And so I didn't get uh, like a bachelor's in English or creative writing or anything like that. Um, I was studying biology for a really long time. And then later on in life, in like my mid twenties, I got an MFA and then started doing it. I'm still in a PhD program now, right? And in my mid thirties. Um, and because of that, I wanted to be as familiar with all of the, the kind of what we say is like writing world as I had come to be with the world of like healthcare or science or something like that in order to feel comfortable trying to do the work or articulate the sets of arguments. You know, and, and we were talking before we, we came on camera about 
um, confidence in claims that that people make. And um, I'm not someone who always feels confident making certain kinds of like uh, broad claims without ever having any experience in the labor that goes into making the thing that I'm supposed to be doing, not just from an individual perspective, but like, what is it like, um, you know, working as an editor or, uh, you know, organizing community literary events, etc. Doing like literary magazine work, all of these things, I was like, if I want to really respect the thing that I'm doing, I need to have some kind of experience uh, in all of these different realms, at least enough to get some kind of comfort so that when I'm communicating with people, I have an understanding of what kind of labor they're doing uh, or feel responsible for versus the kind of thing that I'm doing or or should feel responsible for as well. So I think it was like a combination of of like all of those problems um, being being put together. And I always encourage a lot of other writers. I'm like, if you're really interested, go and do some of these other things like, you know, work for at least for a little bit, right? For some literary journal work, you know, if you can get into one of these like publishing internships. I mean, the other problem is that a lot of us are locked out of them because we're not independently fucking wealthy. And in order to go to New York and do some of these things, you know, you need to already have a lot of money in in most cases. But I'm always like, yeah, you know, do what you can to kind of integrate yourself into the ecosystem of these things that is more than just like blind submitting things to places right which is one avenue that i think a lot of writers take but i'm like oh it's it's you know can be more productive to like do some of the work on the other ends uh of this thing as well so that you you can familiarize yourself be comfortable and like help bring people into the fold who you think should be published or whose work you think um should be talked about uh, and, and so on and so forth do you want to talk uh about just like some of the other things that you did before getting into like the sort of writing academic stuff. And then I'm always curious, you know, especially for folks who um, make, you know, make a decision, you know, when they're like not 20, you know, like a little later when, when you, you know, when you do decide to be like, all right, I'm going to go get an MFA, which is like, even if you get like full funding, like not a (laughs) lucrative prospect, um, never mind like afterward. Right. Um, And then certainly through it is, you know, has all these like sort of like financial difficulties. So um, just to say, I'm curious, yeah, like what did, what all, what kinds of other stuff, other forms of work did you do leading up to that? And then like, what sort of prompted you to like, want to make that change? And was it like, I, I want to get an MFA because I want to do this kinds of, these kinds of things. Um, or was it like, you know, just like some other, some other like realization you had that like, oh, like I can, you know, I can just like get an MFA as a way of like working on my stuff for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a really good question, Zach. I mean, and, and maybe one that we don't talk about directly as directly enough. So, you know, when I, so I applied to a bunch of MFAs, right? I guess I'll start there. I applied to a bunch of MFAs and the ones that I got accepted to, of the ones that I got accepted to, the one that was offering full funding was Notre Dame. And that full funding was $12,500 uh, a year. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Which is obviously like, OK, the expectation is, you know, that one is going to live in South, South Bend. That's obviously not, not enough either way. And they raised it to fifteen thousand dollars a year um, while I was there. And I mean, this is to say nothing about the fact that, like, I already had uh, kids and family that depended on me as well. So this included driving to and from uh, India to and from Philly to Indiana 
uh, a lot while I was there for, for those responsibilities too. And it was hard. It was super, it was super difficult. But, you know, I will say that the way I got there was, you know, I, I worked, I don't know, like everywhere. So for, I, you know, I did the waiter thing. I was like a, a waiter at this kind of bougie uh, retirement home uh, that I worked at with a bunch of friends for a while. Um, I worked at this place, Atlanta Bread Company, that had really good panini sandwiches, I will say, right? Uh, and then while after, I, I used to be there from like 4.30, 5 in the morning because we had to like make the bread and shit. So I'd be there from like 4.30 in the morning to like 3. Then I would work. I was an assistant manager at GameStop at the same mall. So I was at, then I would go to the GameStop. And then that was part time. And then on the days that I wasn't at GameStop, I would leave Atlanta Bread Company. And then I would go to work at Home Depot. Uh, where I worked in the lawn and garden section, where I learned a lot about uh, plants um, under the tutelage of a middle-aged white woman who was great, actually, named Susan Slaughter. I mean, she, you know, she's interesting in a lot of ways. And um, aside from those jobs, I would do like other kind of small odd job stuff. And that's what I would do for like the first uh, grouping of like labor in my life, mainly then um after that i was like okay this is like gonna kill me and i'm not really uh getting anywhere i ended up like a lot of my friends joining the army um so i joined the army i was like okay i'll be a medic i'll get a little bit of training you know because uh, when you do that you you go and they send you to fort san houston in san antonio you do a little bit of medical training there you get like your emt some people do it for nursing etc and, um, you know, you come out and you can get your college paid for or whatever. I was like, I needed, I didn't, so I didn't grow up with anybody who went to college, right? Like, I didn't know that that was a thing. I figured out how much it cost. Did some math in my head. I was like, okay, you know, maybe this is the, the thing I got to do. Went to community college, which was super formative, super formative experience for me. And even though I was studying science at that time, I was already like, okay, I'm taking these poetry classes. I'm taking these fiction classes. Um, and early on, I was interested, but I wasn't like, I can do this for real. I was like, this is, I was like, this is very pleasurable is, is a thing. You know, it's one of those things that's really hard work, but it's also very pleasurable for yourself. Um, and I was like kind of chasing after that. Um, and I would liken it to like learning how to play music or something like that, or learning how to read music. I got that kind of satisfaction from uh, the writing part of it. And then, um, of course, as, as one does, you get deployed to one of, you know, many ridiculous wars. Uh, and so I, I went to Baghdad. I was there for a year. Um, and when I came back, I really went like full throttle into the school stuff. Um, so I was doing that for a while. Um, I started trying my best to avoid responsibilities in the army <laughs> um, as best I could while doing school. I went from community college to Arcadia University. Um, and during this time and transition, I started working, I was working as an EMT uh, for a private ambulance company, which uh, many, many of which are extremely shady and very, very adept at uh, uh, medical insurance fraud. I didn't know this at all, of course, until I, I started doing it and you discover. Uh, I also, at the around that time, started working for uh, as like a, C, a nurse's aide um, and like a patient care associate person um, and then as an emergency department technician. And so that ended up being like long a stretch of particular kind of job, right? That wasn't like separate. And I did some stints at like Home Depot again, still when I like really, really needed money and um, working at some of those places. But my main adult job ended up being working in, in healthcare, like low, like a uh, low level healthcare worker, right? Like beneath a lot of nurses and, and physicians. And um, 
I was studying biology at Arcadia, I did that. And then I was like, all right, I'm going to go to physician assistant school. I was like, this is the thing that is still um, uh, will be like a kind of promotion or whatever, but I don't have to spend, you know, eight years doing medicine in particular. I'll find some joy in it, but I'll, you know, be able to think and use my brain. Still the whole time was taking like uh, FM lit courses, gender studies courses, creative writing courses, whatever. As my, Those are all my electives. Like I feel as money as my of my electives I could with that. Um, GI Bill was running out while I was at uh, Drexel Physician Assistant School. And um, those bills were coming in. I was like, oh shit, this is outrageous. You know, I don't know if I can do this. And I was running into the same problem. I was like, well, now I'm not still not spending a lot of time with my family. I'm spending a ton of money on this school thing, debt that I'm going to die with or whatever, if I don't do something to change it now. And it's actually kind of boring. I'm not really excited about, I'm not happy about it. And I'm also not making a ton of money. So I was like, what the fuck am I doing this thing for ultimately at that point? Um, and then I met, um, I, I uh, was taking classes at St. Joseph's University as well uh, <laughs> because they had like some FM lit courses I wanted to take. And my teacher there, um, uh, a Dr. Lockeridge was like, yo, you know, I feel like you're kind of good and serious about this whole writing thing, but you're doing biology. Like maybe you should go to grad school for this. I was like, pay more money to go to a humanities program. Are you, are you out of your mind? Like, what are you thinking? She's like, no, actually we don't pay <laughs> when we do these humanities um, MFAs and PhDs. If you get into a good one and the writing's good enough, they'll pay for you. And I was like, of course I didn't believe her. You know, I was like, you're lying. That's not a real thing. Uh, turns out she was right, and I um, and that's when I applied to it and got into Notre Dame. So that was all the stuff leading up, up to that and, and those jobs. And um, I did the MFA because to answer the second part of that question, that I did the MFA because I was like I wasn't like this always confused me about my uh, colleagues sometimes where everyone was like oh I'm gonna get an MFA and like somebody's gonna give me a job and my writing career is gonna take off. I never actually thought that. Um, for me, I was like, this is going to allow me to move between move from one world to another, one world that I started to know very well, which was the kind of world of healthcare, at, at least experientially and through reading and through like speaking to a bunch of people in that realm into the kind of literary world. And I was like, there's no guarantee that anything is going to happen there. But if I want to do a PhD, eventually I need to do this first as a stopgap measure. So I actually did an, I finished an MA at St. Joseph. So I've kept taking courses there did the MFA and was like, during the MFA, I was like, I need to work on my being able to apply to a PhD. And so that's what I did in, in knowing. And even going to the PhD, I was like, I may or may not get a job from doing this. I need to be okay with that. And then I need to be okay with the fact that yet and still, like I'm getting paid more than anyone I've known in my uh, entire family has gotten paid to like read some books and go to some classes which I think is a certain kind of overwhelming privilege in and of itself, right? I'm not saying that you know we shouldn't like expect to get reasonably paid for the the labor of pursuing education, but to my mind, I was like, this is the most privileged thing that I can do if I'm interested in reading, writing, um, and thinking, right? Um, and so that's what I did, um, with of course the hope that that would lead to eventually to a position, but not with the expectation that it like automatically would or something. And all along um, that way, part of what I was trying to do with integrating myself into like an ecosystem was to be like, okay, where are some literary journals uh, that I can do some editing? What are, um, you know, and I started a, a reading series that I 
could you know invite people to and, and organize um and i was like where can i do like a um you know an internship at like a um, publisher or something like that all along the way because i knew that i i was not i was too oblivious for my own comfort level in all of these areas in order to be able to um really make uh, arguments claims articulations or like to get my work out there or the work of people that i uh, was interested in out there in, in a real way I'm sorry, that was like long-winded, but that was like, you know. No, I mean, it was a, it was a huge question. I'm sorry for asking it. But no, no. That's, that's, no, that's fantastic. I mean, we're, um, you know, I ask it too, because, you know, we're, we're interested in in just like work and how one continues work, you know, in these conversations. And um, we have a fascination with other jobs people have done, uh, you know, either before or in, in supplement to, or just like in parallel with, um, you know, writing, right, the forms that takes. Uh, and then like, a, I, I mean, I at least personally feel very fascinated by the the sort of like subplot that these conversations are developing, uh, exploring the, you know, like eternal connection between like the service industry and uh, literature. So <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's super interesting, right? Yeah. It's so funny. I was um, having dinner with my editor like last night before this reading. And we were at this restaurant and she was, you know, she comes from like a, a working class or working poor background. So she had a bunch of jobs before, which is actually still unusual, even in that profession, right? For people who work at big five companies that we don't talk about enough, um, which is one of the reasons I, I was really interested in sending my work to her. Uh, and we were, we were talking about this, this kind of problem. And then of course, like somebody that she knew was also working at the restaurant that we went to. I'm like, oh, there is like a perpetual you know, like all of us have worked in, and to some degree in like service uh, industries um, prior, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I guess the next thing we're gonna <laughs> make you do is talk about like all your jobs and work right now, <laughs> now that you've given us this <laughs> beautiful history. Um, but also, should we get a sponsorship from the Atlanta Bread Company? Is one thing I was wondering. <laughs> and um, Home Depot and GameStop. And Home Depot. I was. <laughs> it's so weird. I think they closed. So, like a lot of these games places. Well, some of them uh, have closed, but GameStop is you know still running. Well, we you know they had some troubles. We'll see how long uh, they last. I, it's funny. I thought about get, like going back to work. I was like, I do need some more money, but it's just like unrealistic to try and get a part time job at, at GameStop right now. Um, so I do a lot of, I mean, I'm supposed to be just writing most of the time, right? So that's, that's real. I think we all kind of know that struggle, uh, trying to, to carve out time for that. Um, but uh, most recently, I started doing um, a, a volunteer thing for the um, uh, PEN America's Incarcerated Writers Bureau. So I'm doing that now. And, and that's just most recently on my mind because that was uh, in some email exchanges and stuff like that. And then um, I am the director, the co-director of programs for Blue Stoop, uh, which is a literary hub in Philly that does a lot of, uh, you know, general literary programming, sharing or, or getting people's work out there, helping us uh, think about Philadelphia as a literary city. Um, we'll be doing more programming come May, right, which will be the reading series that I had started before will come now through Blue Stoop um, or restarting the magazine. One of the magazines uh, that was a really popular Philly magazine called Apiary. I'm gonna restart that under under Blue Stoop. So all of these kind of literary organization things, and we we run classes um, three sessions a year. Uh, so that is like a kind of always going on with emails and texts and calls, uh, et cetera, stuff like that. Um, you talked about the Anisfield Wolf. 
<laughs> uh, stuff. There's some more essay submissions that I need to read as well um, that I'm going to get to uh, uh, over this weekend. I read like maybe half of the ones that I that I need to send back already. Um, there's the I'm also a PhD student um, at University of Pennsylvania. So there's a dissertation to write, as I was recently reminded um, by my advisor, maybe like a couple of days ago. That's supposed to be happening. <laughs> um, and then um, what else? Those are those are the main things. Those are the main things. And then there's like a here and there um, stuff that I do. I'm also uh, a new or kind of baby uh, homesteader. So I have um, chickens and that is becoming like a thing that I'm starting to take seriously as as like a, a job. Um, right now, I, we only we only produce enough eggs that I give away to my friends and neighbors. However, um, come May, we will have we will have many, many more because we have like we have like a lot of baby chicks that are going to be grown um, in May and, and they'll start doing that. Um, so that will be uh, that will be a big deal. And then sometimes I have like jobs that I kind of forget about and people have to remind me, you know, uh, but when I try to keep try to keep things as aligned as, as possible, somebody said because I'm on book tour now um, for the. The memoir. Somebody's like, "Oh yeah, that's like a second job or third job or whatever too." And I, at first, I was like, "Oh, it'll just be fun, you know, it'll be fun." And now I'm like, "Oh, actually, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is, um, you know, an additional job." So, so maybe that that fits the bill as well. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I was wanting to. I was going to ask you about Blue Stoop, which you've which you've already mm -hmm. brought up, um, and in part because we're interested to talk about like different kinds of, you know, community literary organizations and what they do. Um, and maybe for folks that don't know it, yeah, I'll just read this like one little sentence from, from the website. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, as you mentioned, they run workshops and classes or you run workshops and classes um, in order to quote, nurture an inclusive literary community by creating pathways to access writing education, inspiration and professional support and celebrate Philadelphia's rich writing tradition, end quote. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'd love to just like hear a little bit more about um, what's exciting to you about Blue Stoop mm -hmm. or about organizations like that, what they can offer like a city and its readers and writers. And sometimes I like to ask people like, what kind of moment um, happens in which you're like, yeah, this is why we need organizations like this. This is when this uh, place is like really happening. So. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I think um, part of it is, or what's exciting is the kind of um, freedom or like set of possibilities that that it offers that isn't attached to or dependent upon like a mainstream institution that a lot of people feel uh, barred from or uh, excised out of. And a lot of that has to do quite obviously, depending on where you're standing in the room, uh, has to do with class uh, stuff as well. And, um, you know, I think it's good for folks to have uh, a place where um, thinking about writing um, and craft and social position and all these things seriously, that doesn't begin at like, um, you know, have you graduated from X college? If not, please shut the fuck up kind of thing. And I think that a lot of the the smaller literary organizations like Blue Stoop um, are interested in doing that kind of work. Um, it's interesting because, 
And, and when I say like freedom specifically, I mean that like, you know, we only have three staff members now and we can just get in the room and talk about like, okay, what do we feel like people might want or what is missing from like, um, you know, a literate ecosystem in a city like Philadelphia, right? Which is, I think, still really known for any day of the week, you can go to like two poetry events in Philadelphia and there will be people there. And that's starting to be true again um, right now, even after the uh, um, the major quarantine phase of, of the pandemic, um, into the phase where everybody acts like nothing happened. Um, and, and so like, I like that. I think that that's really interesting. And I also think sometimes people don't really know where to go or how to get invested or involved in a kind of um, writing life, if that's what they're interested in. Like for me, the example was like, oh, okay, I know that if I go to college, if I do this through a college route or whatever, that's possible. Um, but a lot of folks don't want to do that or can't do that. Um, and I think that places like Blue Soup can be somewhere to find uh, like-minded community members to start doing some of that work, to start thinking about some of that work, to find out just really basic questions. What are literary journals? How do you submit them? How does the publishing process tend to work? You know, how do you go from A to B in any kind of step? In a, in a writing career, um, where can I go to talk about books and, you know, read other people's work and have them read and critique my work, right? In a setting that is kind of open without the expectation that we all have, you know, a met set of resources at our disposals and can just, you know, choose whatever school we want to go to. So I really like that, um, that aspect of it. And I think that that can be a lot of fun. And, it, and, be, and it's kind of amorphous and can shift and change depending on what people need, right? Or, or based on like surveys that we collect or based on conversations that we have with community members and, and you know, with, with each other. Um, and funny, while I was saying that, I forgot about a different job that I didn't say, which was um, the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research, where I'm an associate uh, faculty member and I, I teach courses there as well. Thank you. Um, wait, I think Zach has a question. <laughs> Although oh. you've also nicely anticipated some other stuff we wanted to dive into. Oh, okay, yeah, totally. Place and MFA, yeah. Yeah, I I like it. Um, I guess this is a this is a place for it. This will be a, a digression and then a return, but there are no digressions. It's all we're all on topic. Um, Joseph, I want to ask you a question about subculture. Mm -hmm. Because I think just from what, you know, from the work of yours that I know, I know that you're a person that thinks a lot about sort of, um, you know, like, quote unquote, like nerd culture or yeah. like, you know, uh, like gamer culture. Um, and, you know, it, it occurs to me that <clears throat> when we say things like that, we refer to like a, a subculture, right? Those are subcultures that I think are, they're largely defined by a relationship to like a certain kind of media. Yeah. Um, and I wonder how you think about like, you know, independent literary culture along those terms. Um, do yeah. you see them as similar or parallel in certain ways, um, different in others? That's a good question, Zach. I mean, it's funny when you said subculture, I started thinking about the kind of classic Dick Heptage uh, um, uh, uh, subculture question stuff. And um I don't know, I have to think about that, like whether I think that they're kind of similar in some way. Well, I, you know, if if I'm thinking about like, I guess the first thing I would um, go to or my, my first go to about cults, like culture, subculture stuff is thinking about like those as being spaces that we have to make. 
uh, that don't always already like readily kind of present themselves. You know, we have to like come to them, we have to build them, think about them, et cetera. You know, whether that's like gaming culture, uh, nerd culture, um, all the different manifestations or facets of like black culture, some of which have become mainstream culture if we're thinking about music and some of which uh, have not, right? And, um, you know, I think, and this is always, it's always, always related to capital. There is, there are sets of investments that are possible when it comes to, um, there's money to be made, right, to be, to be more clear, in shifting like a nerd or geek subculture or certain kinds of, of Black subculture, especially around music, into the mainstream as they have become now, that isn't to be made by shifting, um, you know, like printing subculture, like small press culture into the mainstream uh, right in that same way. So I think that that is maybe a primary difference, right, um, are those things. And I don't think a lot of people who write for, I mean, I think, you know, some of the, I'm thinking of like smaller presses and, and one of the first ones that I was interested in like Tarpaulin Sky or something like that, right? And the work that I read in Tarpaulin Sky, some of the, one of the first things I read in Tarpaulin Sky was um, Stephen Dunn's book, Potted Meat. But I think about a lot of stuff that I would read in like Tarpaulin Sky. I'm like, oh, it's obvious why this could never be a kind of mainstreamy kind of thing, right? It would be hard to sell, it would be a little too complicated. It, it, it's difficult to shift it into this kind of really broad black and white, uh, capital P political sense where everybody is saying a lot of nothing. Kind of, um, kind of way of, of like uh, popular uh, speech, you know, and NBC, etc. Kind of conversations, and um, I think that maybe that's the biggest difference between those kinds of, of subcultures and like small press culture. But then there's like a juxtaposition or like a problem with the fact that um, small presses always need more money <laughs> to to survive or to make it, and you see them going out of print. Um, one of them, oh my God, just went out of uh, print one in Philly, name of which I'm blanking on right now. And I was just talking to someone about that. And I'm like, oh shit, that's really like sad and corny because of the reliance on grants or something like that. Right. Or like maybe, you know, one big donor at one particular time that there's no continuation of. Um, so I mean, I didn't say <laughs> anything about the similarities between those, between those things. Um, I said some about differences. I think a similarity could be like, of course, you know, those, they all start off as like more transgressive than like a mainstream culture. Um, and this is true in the, like the dickhead ditch example too, right? It's like this thing that starts off as more transgressive, um, becomes kind of more comfortable uh, for people to enter into. And that shifts into a kind of mainstream or majority position and it loses uh, its edge in a, in a lot of ways, right? And a lot of times that is centered around um, money, capital, neoliberalism, et cetera, any of the words that we wanna use uh, to describe that problem. And I guess that seems really grim, right? That's kind of like worrisome or, or frustrating for me. And, and I think this has already happened with video game subculture stuff um, in, in a lot of ways, right? And with a lot of other cultures you could think of. Totally, yeah. I mean, I think I think about the ways in which um, two, maybe like, you know, especially in the, I, I mean, I don't know, like we use this term like nerd culture as if it's like a con contiguous thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. So, it's so complicated, yeah. right? It's like what, <laughs> the, those things get so hyper-specific. Um, and it occurs to me that like there, those things also, I mean, maybe, I mean, if, if we want to try to be like 
optimistic, which like I'm certainly not, but like, um, I don't know, I've often like found it like heartwarming the way in which like some of those, you know, as like an out, when you're an outsider, right, sort of outside yeah. those things, those things, they seem either, I mean, they either are transgressive, like factually, like politically or aesthetically, um, yeah. and then in other ways, they seem um, transgressive in the way that they're just sort of like operating outside of dominant culture and like doing things that would be like, you know, to an outsider like cringy or embarrassing or like you know like oh that's like uh whatever that's dumb um but like those are actually like really like special like beautiful little communities that like i know that i've i've often kind of you know i've i've said you know ignorant things about you know whatever juggalos or something right (laughs) like i find out like oh actually those are like those are just like people making their own like little thing and it's like you know what do i care um and i i i want to believe in um you know they're like i I mean i want to believe in small press publishing and i want to believe that like it has those aspects to it um although like you know one thing we talk about a lot in these conversations is like well like what is like what is community really you know what i mean (laughs) yeah what does it mean yeah you know um and, and and where does like you know who exactly is something for um so maybe like I don't know I I I'm curious about whether that like this isn't necessarily something for you to like um set me straight on or have an answer for but like I'm curious you know if there's a way in which that like can be thought of as a similarity right between um you know whatever it is whether it's just you know any specific aspect of like gamer culture Mm -hmm. or like people are really into anime or whatever and like the small small press world right and like yeah. the ways that we, we we sort of value these things like in the we have the same feelings about them right and like we we want them to be communities yeah yeah I mean you know I think the first thing whenever someone says community because it's usually in the sense of like we need community community is great like without ever really having to define or talk about it I think of like um uh, quite early in like Sadie Harbin's book, Scenes of Subjection, she has these like comments about community. It's like community, you know, uh, perhaps should be about like removing the kind of uh, means of oppression which make it necessary to have said community in the first place. Um, not, you know, um, external identifiers that uh, are not about collective liberation, basically, right? It's like bad paraphrasing, but that's part of it. And also I'm like, Anybody who is taken part in a community or has been seriously situated themselves or has built a community knows the communities can be fucked up uh, and, and hurt you and hurt other people. It's not, you know, it's not just like the big bad community that we think of, you know, like over there or whatever that we don't want to be a part of, but the ones that you hold dear or closest. Um, and that's perhaps maybe why it hurts more. But I do think it's true also that, um, you know, there is a certain kind of intensity of feeling um or modes of like sentimentality that people think are like trash or dumb or whatever that are possible within uh, a lot of these subcultures that are not possible or not uh, um you know let's say socially sanctioned in in mainstream culture and that always feels good or or is fun right i think about like one aspect of video games that's like that is that it sometimes doesn't matter what the game is but there is a certain kind of um pleasure in in discourse and feeling and, and comfort and like love and the fact that I could be playing like Sackboy's Big Adventure, it's a big AAA game with like my kids. 
and we can be uh, a join together in this thing that we might not that it, we might otherwise find hard to be collectively invested in in the same thing at the same time. And the game in this place is the object that is like allowing us to do this. Right. And, you know, you can say this about a lot of other forms of media. Right. Like um, books, et, et cetera, depending on what culture you belong to. Right. And when you said like nerd culture, as if they're all the same. Right. There's like book nerd culture and like, you know, hardcore tabletop D&D player, Yu-Gi-Oh card player like Pokemon evo community all very different like not always an overlap between you know and most of the time there is no overlap at all right between those things but those things all get lumped into like this is nerd culture whatever um but i do think that taking seriously the fact that those are the objects whether they have um sometimes they have transgressive aspects within them uh, and sometimes it's like what we do with them or how we do the thing with them and with video games i think about that kind of stuff or if now that other uh, um, a lot of my friends are parents and we all work multiple jobs and are busy, whatever. One of the things that we can still do together is play video games online at night when the kids are asleep. So that becomes like a, a communal thing where we're all invested in a similar objective where sometimes we don't even talk about the game. We might be talking about family shit or whatever um, that I think is kind of transgressive that uh, our work lives or the way that you're forced to live would make otherwise impossible, right? Like you, you otherwise cannot do that in, in any way, if not for the internet and this game that like say whatever we want about the game. Like we also make fun about the, of the game sometimes when we're playing it, you know? Um, but it does sometimes enable this kind of thing. So, so I am invested in that. And I think that sometimes if you think of a small press, sometimes the labor aspect of them or the shared experience of thinking through uh, those works can also do that. But what I think is also true is that, um, you know, people kind of get mad about this sometimes. It's like the, the primary aesthetic uh, um, mode in the world or object and the, the most popular ones are now video games, right? It's not uh, anything else. It's like, it's not even close <laughs> to, to thinking about anything else. And a lot of folks don't like that. And I'm like, well, that doesn't mean it's not true and that we don't have to think about it in that way. Yeah. Oh, that's that's great. Do you um re, uh, do you have a favorite video game or or type of game that you yeah you yeah right now I mean I you it used to be like RPGs but now I like um you know I now I like uh, cooperative or like multiplayer action adventure kind of stuff that you can pick up and put down like um you know mission oriented stuff so I'm thinking I was talking to a friend some friends yesterday about Monster Hunter like those kinds of games um or maybe like Sackboy's Big Adventure is like one. Um, a lot of folks I know play uh, Final Fantasy Online, like those kind of games, those, um, you know, that that generate like multiplayer experiences that like a lot of folks can do at the same time. I was thinking <laughs> we have like, um, I think we only have two video games in our house, Red Dead Redemption and a Grand Theft Auto. And without naming <laughs> any names, <laughs> I'll say that <laughs> we're playing the same game of Grand Theft Auto for I think seven years and mm -hmm. whenever we open it it's like you've completed three <laughs> percent there's no no one has any orientation toward any goals Look, violence is violence um, and you know it's awesome. you're just like I'm gonna go in there and I'm gonna shoot some flowers like um okay and that'll be um I was just I was so happy uh hearing you talk about the sort of um like transgressive nature of those like communities making themselves and how it's like not about the thing that they uh, necessarily even the thing that they're gathered around or the thing that they're yeah. trying to like produce um but it's something in right the the energy of gathering or the occasion of of gathering um and i guess you know 
we're doing this whole podcast on like small presses. Um, and, and at this point in my life, you know, I'm about to hit like 20 years working in independent uh, publishing. Um, and I'm like, well, why am I so obsessed with small presses other than that's like where I live? You know, it's just like yeah. where I've ended up. And it is to me, I think about the, the structure of that, this like sort of social and political potential of the structure. Um, right. And the, you know, as, as you described, the kind of transgressive potential of a structure in which people can get together and decide to make a thing. And that that thing will be like, it'll be like part of the mix. Like if you're making a book, it'll be a book like other books are books, you know, like it'll, you can participate that way. Um, and so, but I was also thinking, you know, it's also like, as you said, like often it's like, the culture is fucked up or a lot of like bad things happen. They're not very um, in the eras of small presses that even I have kind of lived in as a writer and editor, the problems, a lot of them were clear. They were not very inclusive. They were sort of had a, a lot of like aesthetic biases, a lot. Some of the scenes were just like regular old sexist, you know, and I was talking to Danielle Dutton about this, about her founding of Dorothy. And, and I was just like, oh yeah, like, like those scenes, just like weren't going to include women's rights like just the experimental right. writing of that time it just kind of wasn't going to but then I was like but what she got to do then is just make her own press like yeah. <laughs> you know you and that, <laughs> yeah like that's the thing that's so powerful where it's like it's not that any one scene is um is the right one or something it's in the potentiality of like always making the next the next thing um and so I think that's it. and of having people gather around it and and sharing it and contribute to it um so I guess like those are the the things that make me come back to the small press are less about um, what it produces maybe than about that, the potential of that structure. And I guess I just, I kind of wanted to just like ask you or get more of your insight about this because you work as a writer across, kind of across the whole landscape of publishing. Like your um, book just came out um, on Grand Central and it's been like really so like wonderful and exciting to see it be received and to see it get this like tremendous and like moving review by Brian Washington and the New York times. Um, and you're like out and about doing all these things. And you're also someone who works on these like grassroots projects and reads a lot of small press work and big press work, um, and has published in all these different ways. So I'm just kind of, I was just kind of curious, uh, you spoke to all this in this sort of subculture sense, but maybe to ask you about like how you think about that literary publishing ecosystem and, um, your work in it and, and kind of what to you is, you know, the role or value of like an independent or smaller press these days or how that kind of fits in to your own reading and writing and thinking? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's really hard. And and the press I was thinking about that at just closed, um, Nomadic Press, was oh. a I was thinking about earlier that I couldn't uh, get to the name of. And, you know, part of that, part of that in my own thinking has been like, the idea that, and people say this about the difference between big and small press stuff all the time, right? In that um, the small presses, there's more of an ability not just to publish like transgressive work, but to make real decisions about like cultivating um, the career perhaps of someone or groups of folks uh, writing that have been kind of overlooked or would otherwise never make it into a kind of mainstream uh, frame. And it's interesting because I have a lot of friends who are like, 
I would never publish with one of these like big five people. Uh, they are gross in every way, shape and form. Um, but especially around the political sense, right? They're like, they're, you know, I have a lot of friends who are like, they're all aesthetically boring and politically they're all absolute garbage. I would never go to one of those, one of those folks, right? So, um, it's also <laughs> true in this, in this sense that, um, I get to be involved in some kind of, conversations with the kind of work that they're making that I think is also super interesting and to have like hands in and do some of the labor that is involved in curating a project from like beginning to end which I think is much much more individuated um, in like a larger press right where it's like it's not as if um you know we we always have like one person going from beginning to end but it goes from like uh, uh editor marketing publicist like up the chain make another argument about it maybe come back down etc and, and so forth but the kind of more direct line or let's say like increased intimacy of doing um small press or um magazine work is is really interesting to me or i think really important to me and so i mean it it sounds corny but it's like for me a lot of the stuff is about like oh friendships with people or like having people that you can have real and serious conversations with i mean you know randomly like i'll text you about this kind of stuff all the time like about books or or whatever or just about like ideas or, or something um and i think that cultivating those kinds of relationships with people are super important and again right it's like we don't have a lot of space um, to do that. And with regards to like my, my own work, I mean, I take just as seriously, right. The, the kind of work or the idea of like, uh, whether I send this to like some big magazine or whether I send this to some small magazine, um, uh, uh as far as like the quality of, of the product that can come out of it. I think the real, uh, other concern that's underneath of that has to do, of course, with money, um, and pay and, and like who can pay. And so if I'm at a point in my life where I'm like, okay, I know that uh, in order to be, in order to reasonably transition my life into the literary world and for that to be my work and my job and to do some stuff uh, with small presses or magazines, um, I also know that I have to make some money, right? Like some money has to come out of it, which means that some stuff I have to do uh, uh, larger press work, right? It's just mandatory. It's just how it has to be in order to, to um, you know, uh, make sure that economic conditions are, are working properly. This is why a lot of people, I mean, and we know this, right? This is why a lot of writers teach. A lot of writers aren't like, I want to teach because I love teaching necessarily. A lot of writers are like, I'm just going to teach because I know that this is where I want I want my work to be involved in these kind of conversations. And I know that that's actually not a way to make any money or anything, um, but it's what I care about. And so the teaching then becomes the thing that supplements their ability to do that. Um, and for me, I'm like, I mean, and that's part of why um, I straddle both worlds a, a lot of the time, right? Where I'm like these books and I got lucky. I got extremely lucky as well, right? Like, so I uh, met and worked with the person who would then become my editor at, at this larger press too. So that was, um, that was part of how that worked. And so I, I think that sometimes it's necessary for me, like just financially wise on like a really basic level to be able to do, to do both things. Um, even though I, I think also the intimacy or like hands-on-ness of being able to do work uh, with smaller presses or, or magazines is super important. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Zach. <laughs> we just like to say yeah, though. We just uh. like to say yeah at the same time. <laughs> I think it's cool. It'll be, I hope they're perfectly synced in the cloud recording. 
serendipity. Um, I think they are, yeah. Yeah, 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 thanks. I thought I heard it. Um, Joseph, I wanted to ask you, I mean, I think this is related. You know, you talk about, you know, economic conditions having to be satisfied. Um, I mean, something I, 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 I don't know, I often think about or that like, I just know about you. I mean, I've, we've only hung out a couple times, but like, you know, I, I, I know you're a person who has a family and mm -hmm. that is in like half <laughs> for a long time. Like, and, and I don't know, I, you know, I, I don't like, I'm, I didn't like do an MFA when I was like 21 either, but like, you know, even when I did later on, like, it's not like I was in, you know, a lot of conversations or a lot of like communities, um, be that in the classroom or like socially where people were, you know, they were, they were trying to do some, something, right. Some kind of like a literary or literary minded work that they thought was important. And that would, would take work and they'd have to organize their lives around. Um, they weren't doing those things. And also, you know, like having a family, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just different, right. Changes uh, priorities. Um, uh, and I don't, I mean, you know, I'm married, but I, like, I don't have, I don't have kids either. Right. So, um, I, I'm curious, like, you know, and this is very much framed by just like what I know about you from where mm -hmm. I am again, having hung out with you like twice, um, you know, I, like, I think of you as like a family, like a family minded person. Right. Um, I've been on a bunch of zoom calls with you and like, it's, it's not like <laughs> uncommon for just like a bunch of kids to like run through in the background. Um, which I find like, I find just like so endearing and great, right? Um, and I wonder about like, I don't know, I just wonder about how you think about those two worlds um, and like to the extent to which like they are or can ever be separated because it also strikes me that, I mean, you know, we you see those like, you know, uh, those gaffes, you know, from like news interviews where like someone's kid enters the room and it's like everybody panics, right? Um, yeah, it seems yeah. Like, it, like it's this, it's sort of it's like an impingement on professionalism or something if like your family oh, is visible. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess I just, you know, I'm just curious to know like how like how you navigate that or how you think about it. Um because I've I, I've loved how you handled it so far. <laughs> it's, you know, I, I mean I, I guess the first thing, you know, it's like in in being as honest as possible, like I of course had to sacrifice a lot. So like I was in Baghdad when my son was born, right? This is what I mean by like, you know, I'm like, okay, like I'll have money now, but like, this is what I won't, this is what I won't have, or these are the kinds of moments or things that I'll miss out on. Um, I have twins that are five. And when they were really little, I was in Notre Dame driving back and forth to Philly, right? And having tons of arguments about like childcare, about like, you know, responsibility and like, what is actually right? I was like, oh, could I drive them up there and, and stay with me, you know, for a while? Or then how do I find the place to stay at when I come back and then I pick them up and they're spending their time with me? Um, and that shit was very, very, very difficult. And it was, it produced a ton of, ton of arguments, uh, a ton of, of strife. Um, and, you know, eventually, and I, and uh, the other problem was that I used to go out of my way to be like, to try and make it so that my professional life was separate. And so that I wouldn't have to like explain uh, to someone like why I missed some meeting or like why I couldn't do something or whatever. I'm like, you know, someone asked me, I'm like, I'm literally driving to pick up my like sick kid right now. Like the mom can't pick him up. She's already mad because she picked him up the last two times. 
So now I got to go and do it. It doesn't matter what the fuck this other meeting is. And sometimes I'm like, that meeting could have been an email anyway, whatever. So like, I'm going to do this thing. Um, you know, it's been, so I, 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 I guess what I would say first is that I don't want to misrepresent uh, it as something that's been easier or that I have always done perfectly. Cause that is actually not true at all. Um, what I will say as I think that I've got, as I've got older, like as one does, you get progressively like a little bit better um, at these things. And I will also say that as I have, um, kind of, you know, the, you know, gotten rid of that boundary between like my professional and home life and just kind of been like, look, you know, if you want me to come to this class and this was, this first started being true when I was doing my MA, I'm like, I don't have childcare today. Like I'm bringing my son to class with me. It's what He's going to do his homework while I'm doing this like night class work. Cause I was working at the hospital in a day and I got lucky cause I had advisors like uh same person, um, this uh, woman, uh, Dr. Aisha Lockridge, at, who was like, yeah, I don't care. Bring your bring your kid and let them do their homework or like color in the class. Right. He wasn't like screaming or yelling. Um, but although sometimes kids do that and that is much more difficult. Uh, I will say like with the twins, bringing them to stuff way fucking harder than it ever was <laughs> with with my oldest now. And sometimes I'm just like, damn, I don't even know if this is like realistic. They were all at the um, at the Philadelphia Library uh, reading when it was like the, the book launch thing just yelling half the time, you know, and shit, like I'm reading and they're like, they're like, yo, daddy, you know, like <laughs> I'm like, all right, man, you know, can we just chill a little bit? Um, so anyway, I would say like, it's always an experiment bringing them to stuff and trying to figure out like what that means. I mean, one of them is going to come in the door at, at some point or whatever. The oldest gets on the, gets on the bus first. Um, but I was like, okay, well, what does it mean? Cause I'm someone who grew up without any adult examples who did anything that they actually loved or liked. And that had a really profoundly kind of fucked up effect on me, right? So at first I was like, I didn't want to create a situation where it felt like I had to do something in my life that was not directly focusing on them when they were around. So I was like, I don't want to have to like do work and, ha- and have to tell them, oh, like, hey, could you, you know, sit here and play with this toy for a little bit? Like while I, I do this, this thing, um, which is just not a possibility, right? Like depending on how your life is, is structured really. And I didn't want to deal with, all the hostility you get from people. And this is, this is just as true on the left or, you know, might be more true on the left, depending on where you go. People are very fucking hostile to kids, especially black kids. And that was so obvious to me that I always tried to like keep them, uh, um, out of a lot of those spaces because I didn't want to deal with what people also didn't want to have to knock anybody's fucking teeth out if we're being perfectly honest to be in a space where like I have to deal with somebody trying to be like rude to my, three-year-old kid who's like asking for food or something when we're in like some long ass meeting with like I just I, I I have a very difficult time dealing with like grown people being rude to my children in any capacity for like them being reasonably like a kid or something um so all that stuff were things that I just started like you know navigating a little bit better more and more um as I got older it's also like you know a huge gender thing because People um, usually don't know what to do. They're like really weird about it because they never expect uh, that I would have to like care for a child or, or do something, you know? In the back of their minds, they're like, isn't there some woman at home who's doing all the childcare or something like that? Um, obviously it is like weird, you know, sexist economy all the time, you know? Uh, and then it's, it's funny cause like um, women I know who have kids who have to work a lot and shit like that, are dealing with those on the other end. It's like, oh, like they're not getting paid enough because they expect that they have some dude who's making all the fucking money. And like, why should that, you know, it's, it's like always a problem. And I think this is something that we don't deal with enough on the left at all. 
But for me, I knew that um, it had to be, I, I had to figure out ways that there was more and more kind of like integration of those two worlds, because it's also true that the more I move into like the literary world or humanities world or whatever, especially over Zoom, I mean, this, it, it all broke down over, <laughs> over lockdown quarantine, because everybody's doing school from home and I'm teaching from home, which I have to, to make money, right? And you can't have a sitter because I'm like, you know, I'm like 30 feet away from everybody. There's no vaccine. I'm super paranoid. I'm like, I don't know what's going on, right? Um, that all kind of broke down. So I was like, you know, people will be on their little fucking Chromebooks from school right there. And I'm like teaching right here. And that started to kind of completely dissolve um, that barrier. And so nowadays I'm pretty upfront about like, hey, I can or cannot do this because uh, my, my kid is doing something. Or I'm like, yeah, I promised to go on this school trip like three months ago. I can't be, I can't now say no because there's like a meeting that again could be a phone call or or whatever. Um, and so I, I kind of go back and forth. I think it's not perfect. I think it's something that um, I just have to spend a lot more time thinking about because I, I don't have, you know, uh, 20 years experience doing this in the same way that I have that that much experience with just regular working. But it is something I think about a lot. And, and um, you know, I'm just like, whatever, I'm, I'm learning as, as best I can, I guess. And I think it, Totally. And I, and I think, I don't know. I mean, I think it raises like questions about like, what is like, what constitutes professionalism, right? And, and like, oh, yeah, profession, you know? yeah, um, the profession yeah. where everybody's really worried about your personal life. Anyway, and, and that is somehow like <laughs> professional. It's, it's really weird. Yeah. Do you think that that sort of, um, I mean, to, to call it non separation would imply that like separation, it is possible in other places you know what I mean like mm -hmm. I mean that's another question but like do you think that that sort of um you know like you've sort of embraced the permeability or the the fluidity between like your quote-unquote personal life and your quote-unquote yeah. professional life right it's like it's just your life um is there a way in which that you feel that that comes out in your writing or like bleeds into your writing mm -hmm. or informs like certain style choices or or ways one might that you might, you know, write about the self um, in relation to the world? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question because, you know, one of the rules that I have generally, I mean, there's tons of people who are like, I don't post pictures of my kids on my Instagram or or whatever, something like that because of, of, of um, you know, they don't want them to be able to see them. And um, which I do, I do post kids uh, pictures of my kids on Instagram and stuff like that. Um, but what I don't do is like disclose things that they don't want me to disclose or, you know, things that they reasonably would not want me to disclose. Right. So like I might talk about something that's really funny that they did or that we did together, but I don't. And this is in the writing, too, even though I am mostly writing about like young black people or like black kids specifically. Or sometimes I'll mention I'm like working on or, or trying to pitch an essay right now, actually, about um, uh, Pokemon. <laughs> as a cultural phenomenon slash esports slash communal uh, practice thing that includes my son because we're going to a Pokemon tournament together, right? But there are like some things that are kind of off limits for me to disclose about um, any of my kids in that in that writing, even though I think it's important to write um, that work seriously. I think maybe, you know, one of the best books that I have ever read about someone writing about or including their kids in is um, Imani Perry's book, Breathe. That book is so fucking good. It's like one of those books when you read it and it actually made me really sad because I was like, 
wow, like what would it be like to have this person as somebody who is caring for you, um, who pays this much attention or is like this or is this serious about about caring for you and something like that? I'm like, you know, uh, that is like well within the kind of rules of, or standards that I set for myself uh, with regards to writing, even though um, I am very invested or, or most invested in like uh, young black folks. And when I'm thinking about like who as a, as the subjects who should be centered in this work or um, positions to be thought through. I think it's like without, <laughs> I, know, I don't want to sound like, overly sentimental but I just think like just like talking about all these things openly is in itself very helpful <laughs> um and as company for people um I hope so I mean doing I, I this living and work, yeah yeah I mean I I try to but I I do recognize a certain kind of hostility <laughs> yeah. from from when you talk about it, it it gets really hostile really fast yeah I was thinking if your time do you have time yeah. for one more question? Yeah, that, yeah, of course. That might be two questions in one. No, it's fine. Because yeah. um, like, I was thinking when you were talking about, um, you know, I want to think for a second about like academic work and like the MFA and then like kind of like regional writing, um, like mm -hmm. writing of a place um, and and like class is part of both of those things. But I was thinking when you were talking about um how in like professional settings, like all, so many of the professional structures and settings that we're in all the time, they actually were really made to um, like accommodate like a certain set of people's like feelings and yeah. their like to benefit them and their family structure and their, um, you know, economically, like all the benefits flow toward them. And actually their feelings are part of everything all the time. You know, like, like if you have a feeling at work or you are honest about your life like that's a problem and creates a problem but like the rest of the time it's like um i'm often dealing with a certain like men's feelings are just like what yeah. the entire job <laughs> is totally yeah. accommodated around yeah. and we just have to deal with it all and you're like okay so what professionalism is is that you guys get to just like um be babies and everybody else um mm -hmm. has to like accommodate that and if we like any all of these different kinds of difference and you know in all these in subject positions all these different ways anytime they're present they create this whole problem as though we were the ones having feel you know like yeah our feelings or bodies or existence are this huge problem and you're like that's only because this entire thing is built around yours all of your specific, yes. <laughs> yeah. you know, like that's it. And you're having wives at home who are, you know, doing X or Y, like all of that. Um, I don't know. So it's like this weird shaming whenever you might say something real. Um, but as soon as, you know, whatever, as soon as any of them have a feeling, everyone has to, um, accommodate it mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway, rant concluded temporarily, uh, <laughs> because, you know, then I was thinking about that, like, okay, academic work and the MFA. Um, and when I think about the MFA now that I, um, I'll always, I'm in one forever, because um, I'm teaching in an MFA program. And, you know, it's such a, it's a flawed institution. But as you were said, it, it kind of toward the beginning of this interview, like, as a place to do reading and writing and thinking, you're like, well, there's not that many places in this culture to do that. Um, and so even though it, it, it's a pretty imperfect one, it, it does still feel kind of valuable and rare because the rest of, you know, all the jobs one has had and all of these things, they didn't have 
time for that and they didn't exactly. support it and they didn't value it. Um, so it is a place where that can happen, even though it like drags all of the, the problems of the academy, some of which I just ranted about, like into it, you know, racism, classism, sexism, all of these things. And, and also like, you know, gets caught up in, in these questions of professionalization and, and, you know, being attached to a credential. Right. Yeah. Um, so, but also the other hard thing about MFA is, and about the academy is that they're kind of geographically displacing, right? People have to move to go do one mm -hmm. um, and they have to move to get the jobs. And if you end up working in the academy, you, um, you're you kind of transplanted all of the time um, and you aren't really in one place. Um, and I think that that's had, um, on this podcast, we've ended up because we're in Northeast Ohio, we've talked to a lot of folks from Cleveland and we've um, ended up thinking, you know, we're called the Cleveland State University Poetry Center. Neither Zach nor I are from Cleveland, right? We came here because of exactly those types of um, dynamics. Um, and, uh, you know, we've ended up thinking about like, like regional writing or, or regional identity, these, these things in, in literature and art. Um, and there isn't a lot it feels like there's like sort of a dearth of conversation about that or the conversations are kind of old, you know, they're belong to a different era. And right now, like, even though it feels like maybe that could be part of conversations about equity or about ecological consciousness, things like that, that might be regional, they're not quite happening. And I was like, well, one reason they're not happening is because is maybe a little bit because of things like the MFA and, or things like publishing being largely centered in a couple cities. Um, like those things mean that these kinds of like sub subcultural or cultural richness and geographical richness aren't, aren't seen as much or place isn't seen as much. Okay. So those are some, <laughs> some of the things that brought me to this question about like writing in Philadelphia. Um, and when, you know, I read like your bio, uh, it always starts, Joseph Earl Thomas is a writer from Frankfurt, <laughs> right? <laughs> Meeting a neighborhood in Philadelphia. Right. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, uh, recently you and I were on a panel about prose from Philadelphia. Um, and arguably I didn't belong on that at all since I only lived there for four years. Um, but I, like I've written about it and, and weirdly, I feel like I've ended up as an editor and publisher being involved with a lot of writing from Philadelphia. Cause I feel like it's an incredible, there's like an incredibly rich, ferocious kind of wonder of writing, um, by, uh, out of Philadelphia that has yet to be kind of recognized enough. Um, so I kind of just wanted to ask you a little bit about being a writer from or of Philadelphia, like what you find that meaning to you. Um, and then like any other thoughts you have um, in relation to that pile you just said of like about like quote unquote re regional writing or writing of place or like the kind of local identities um, of cultural work. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a really good question, uh, Hillary. I mean, I was thinking about like the, when when you first started talking, I was thinking about like the kind of um, uh, the the Sylvia Winter work that like across the work you get this like really specific and apt description about like how we get to this point where there's all these displacements of um, feeling right that it's really about like the entire human history is about like the select interests or feelings of uh, like a few <laughs> well socioeconomically positioned men. Uh, under the guise of being about humanity or whatever, right? Under the guise of like human or something. And then you get all these like really weird kind of um, branches of that in places like the Academy, right? Where it's like, oh, you want accommodation or like it's about your identity, right? Like folks pointing outwards when actually like the entire structure <laughs> is about the same way that the world has been structured. And like, why would that um, be any different? I think, you know, one of the things that... Uh, 
helps to think about not just that problem, but all of the different kind of like isms or whatever I'm going to call them, whether it's classism, sexism, racism, um, et cetera, is to be like as specific as possible sometimes about the experiences that we're, that we are describing. And geography is a part of that because your experience of the world has so much to do with uh, geography. It's funny. I was talking to um, my friend Elias uh, and He's really interested in and he wrote a, a book that's like really about like Florida, right? Like certain certain uh, particular part of Florida. And it's like, oh, it's important to say things about like um, how you're getting from place to place, because this is a place where you need a car or like people's social experiences are so bound up around the fact that like there's one or two people who have cars. And even though you might be from disparate um, kind of like backgrounds or whatever, you might gather t together around the fact that like, this is the person who has a car to get you from A to B, which might be several you know hours away or, or 40 minutes away or whatever. And there's no other way to actually do that. Um, and I think that that's true about uh, a lot of places. There's always something, it might not necessarily be like mode of transportation or whatever. And with Philly um, specifically, but even more specifically with Frankfurt, it was a place where, you know, a lot of the people in my immediate um, neighborhood or area did not go to other places because when well, the public transportation wasn't that great, like you could use it, but also nobody had a car. So you know, it was very rooted in like the several blocks, uh, um, you know, around which you could you could walk. And, and that was important because you would be forced into conversation or context with a lot of people who sometimes you could ignore, right? Like, you know, this is like a good example. The weird thing where like now most of us don't know our neighbors um, at all. That is really fucking weird and alienating, right? To not know your neighbor <laughs> in the place. For one, because people are forced to move so fucking often. Um, two, because people have to work so far away from where they live and you have to work all the time. So how would you have any time or space? And so I was thinking about even this, a simple thing like that as being a really big privilege um, one that I actually have now, because um, where I'm at now, right, like um, where my house is at now, like I do know a lot of my neighbors and I am, I do like um, and my, my kids can have friends that are in the neighborhood, etc. And even stuff like that, we're kind of losing. And for me, you know, focusing on like geographic position, uh, uh, that stuff becomes super important because it's not just, um, you know, the, the external stuff that you get, but like what kind of... Um, internal or like local possibilities there are, whether that is like for um, friendships, relationships or whatever, are very different depending on how the city you live in is built or formed around, um, uh, et cetera. A lot of these like, um, um, you know, early like uh, 20th century German philosophers are all about this, right? Like all the conversations about architecture, like why architecture is so important. Well, it's like physical spaces uh, matter to how people are able to live, right? Of course, the fact that we don't have parks or playgrounds in a lot of places that I grew up uh, in anymore or that a lot of them aren't safe matters a hell of a lot to um, young kids who I am interested in, the, you know, which is like a primary perspective of thinking through uh, for me. Right. And, you know, I, I think that sometimes we lose a lot when we don't take that seriously. Um, when that's in, when we use like uh, a, a kind of marker of identity, but don't think about how that matters so much to where you where you grew up and in what time uh, specifically, right? As some, this is something that happens in my own book where it's like, oh, you know, I was in middle school during 9-11. Um, I don't have the same experience of that because of uh, who my 
parents and, and family were and because of where I was, right? I don't have that same experience that a lot of other people I know who are either in New York um, or who were um, of a certain kind of uh, socioeconomic background or who were parented even more specifically than that, where there were people around them talking about the importance on a global scale of such a thing happening, right? Who knew that this would be a thing where America would enter into uh, a, a war that would never end, right? Who had that kind of perception, but there was no one I knew uh, who was having that conversation at all. And so it had a completely different impact. And that has everything to do with like uh, geography and, and social position, right? Um, so I'm kind of obsessed with these, with these kinds of details because um, they really matter. And sometimes when they don't come up, in these like really big conversations, I'm like, this feels really vapid and, and empty, right? Um, like, what is it? What is the point of having this conversation without talking about experience, without using um, any real details, uh, uh, and and just kind of um, emptily re repeating <laughs> uh, uh, things sometimes? And I get, yeah, I guess that's how I feel about that, or or, or what I'll mostly say <laughs> about, about that gesture instead of like going on my own uh, rant in that in that position. I mean, I guess the like details, like details are the thing that can alienate people. I guess, you know, maybe that's mm -hmm. why they get like scrubbed in these media contexts where. Yeah. And um, they, they don't work in sound bites. They don't work. They don't usually fit in a, you know, standard 20 page paper, but they also don't usually fit in a 20 minutes clip or whatever either. And, uh, you know, like we, we have this other problem where it's like, where do you approach a conversation with with someone that is like fair um right uh do you 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 bear down on people and i think sometimes intellectuals do this right like bear down on folks who have not had the opportunities to come to the kind of understandings or to use the same words that maybe we have had consistent access to um and make them and make them feel belittled in a lot of ways but i think that there are ways of being specific that are not also that are not that, you know, and sometimes we conflate the two. I like, um, <laughs> it's like a one, I feel like one thing that's happened on this podcast, e even though it's in like different and specific ways are like calls into specificity, <laughs> right? <Away from>, <laughs> which I do feel very excited about, um, or at least, uh, sympathetic with um maybe just to to close things off I'll just ask you if there's some things you've read lately that you're excited about or want oh, to that shout out about. yeah so I'm reading um I just started uh these uh Jane Cortez poems um on the Imperial Highway uh which are very good I think and I'm going to read this uh, book came in the mail, um, Funeral, uh, this book by Dice uh, K. Shen and Vicky Now that I'm excited to read. And then I want to read the new Gail Jones books, but I started going back to read the old ones and then I got, like didn't finish reading all the old, like rereading all the old ones. And now I'm like, okay, do I uh, wait until I'm done rereading all the old ones to go back to it? Or like, I don't know. But the one that maybe I think is like, and I meant to tell you about this too, Hillary. I was going to text you about this anyway. Um, this book, um, Scattered scattered All Over or Scattered Across the Earth um, by Yoko Tawada. Um, it's in translation and it came out like last year or something like that. I've been reading that while I'm like, 
flying around. It's so weird, but I think it's good. It's kind of like funny too, kind of kind of goofy. Um, so may, so yeah, I really like that one, and and maybe that's the one that I am um, uh, thinking about the most. And the other one that's in my bag right now that I'm like halfway through is um, uh, Maya Phillips uh, poetry collection Iru. It's called like E R O U. I don't know if I'm saying or, or spelling that right. Awesome. Um, Yoko Tawada is, you've hit like a guilty spot on my to, uh, to read. Oh, really? <laughs> like I've been okay, meaning okay. to get to Yoko to, so now okay. I'm on it. I'm on Good. It. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, Joseph, thank you so much uh, for spending this hour and change, hour and a half with us. Um, and yeah, thank you for having me. Um, it's been great. Yeah. Well, I'm going to hit stop on this recording. <laughs> Enough already. <laughs>